Thank you, Dave. And uh, as Dana Sanders comes up, I want to introduce him as our uh, speaker this morning. Dave, Dana is, your name is Dana, not Dave, uh, is going to be giving his, his testimony. Um, just part of a lot of things we're trying to do, especially this semester, to, uh, to notice uh, who God's brought here and, and what he's put into this, uh, this community. Dana is Director of Leadership and Character Development, uh, and that's a very important position here uh, for what it stands for. But again, uh, for me, the thing that really matters is I just really like Dana. And uh, he shares, uh, shares a very uh, cozy office uh, with uh, the chaplain staff. Uh, and I've known Dana to be a man of great integrity, uh, of deep love for God, and uh, just a man that I'm delighted to have stand in front of you this morning and uh, tell you a bit of his story and God's dealings with him over the years. So would you pray with me for Dana that... Uh, He'll honor God, and uh, and he won't be quite as nervous as I think he probably is right now as he uh, as he does that. Father in heaven, thank you for my brother. Thank you for what he brings to this college. Lord, everything we are and everything we have comes from you. Lord, I pray that Dana will successfully point to you as he tells us uh, something of his story. Lord, give him grace, give him joy, give him peace as he does that. Give us tender hearts and open minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Ben. Well, good morning. As introduced, I am indeed Dana Sanders, and I'm told my job today is to tell you all my testimony. Now, this is an odd task for me to do. By definition, it's to make a declaration or to give some form of evidence of something. My hope today is that there may be evidence indeed of hope and of grace and of truth and of redemption, perhaps even transformation. That's certainly been my experience. But such things are not really for me to make conclusions about. These things are for you to observe and decide for yourself. It's important to note, too, as Ben alluded to, uh, that these testimony things are hard to do. I'm supposed to come up here and give my Christian testimony and be honest at the same time. And uh, I'm not only supposed to do that, but I'm supposed to share and I'm not supposed to perform. I'm supposed to spill my guts in front of 1,200 of my closest friends. Um, and it's daunting. There's some people even in here right now who are deliberating as to whether or not to listen or whether or not to get their reading done for their 1 o'clock class. And quite frankly, I can understand those deliberations. Um, it's hard for me to imagine why anyone would want to hear my story. It's actually not a sexy story. Um, it's not even that racy. Uh, but it's a story marked by something significant. So remarkable that it was worth the effort of writing it down and reading it so that I wouldn't mess it up. It's actually the greatest of stories in my mind because it's the redemption of a human soul. And more so, it's not just historical, it's live. And I suppose that whenever gets, God gets into someone's live narrative, it's worth talking about. So let's get to it. I'm a sophomore here at Westmont College, which means, of course, I'm in my second year of service here. I'm 31 years old, and as a reference point for some, that means that I missed everything good and bad and awful of the 60s, including uh, Woodstock and landing on the moon and all those other cool and terrible things. I have, however, lived through the uh, first wave of feathered hair, uh, disco, and bell-bottoms. 
I also managed to survive Izod shirts and uh, tapered pants and Cindy Lauper in the 80s. Um, I also managed to survive going online, uh, the arrival of Prozac, and the Clinton years of the 90s. Some of you know that I have a couple of kids. I figured if I showed a picture of them, my stock as a chapel speaker would go up immediately. So without further ado... Yeah, I know. This is uh, Drew and Abigail. Yeah, I keep flashing. <laughs> To give your testimony and have your kids be around, it's a little tough. <clears throat> Needless to say, I'm kind of fond of them, and uh, they make me want to get up in the mornings. Now, in having kids, thank goodness, I also have a wife. <laughs> um, in describing her, I find it difficult not to start with the obvious. Uh, she's rather good-looking. Um, but she's more than attractive. She is beautiful, holistically, from the inside out. She has her quirks, but I think her beauty, uh, it begins to shine in a way that, well, it's mostly manifested in times when I am failing, when I need grace in my life. And uh, she has certainly been a major part of my story. Over the course of our relationship, from kissing to dating to friendship to matrimony, in that order, she has been my <laughs> did, did I mention she was attractive? Because But she has been my partner in the discovery of God's redemption, and I am I am so grateful for her. In addition to these wonderful people that make my house a home. A significant part of my story shows up in where I come from. Currently, I come from the United States of America. I do not hold U.S. citizenship, though. I am a foreigner who has lived here for some 11 years. And I, for one, am not just proud, but extremely thankful to call this place home. Over the course of my time here, I have become more and more American as each day has passed. Much of that distinction I am really thankful for. Some of it concerns me. But in both respects, this is no small thing for a foreigner from my country to admit out loud. I believe it is a privilege to be a part of this really incredible project you all have started. Um, many of us around the world have been impressed by what you've pulled off in such a short amount of time. I had a conversation with a friend of mine from Sweden who, commenting on my living in the U.S., had this to say. He noted that there were bakeries in his town that were older than our country. But with due respect noted, I wanted to tell him that, in my humble opinion, he could keep his pastries. Um, I'd rather have all that is America. Ours is an amazing enterprise that has come to be at great expense. And again, I'm mostly thankful. I do, however, have a country of origin that is significant to me as well. My colleagues are chuckling because I talk about this incessantly. But as many of you know, I am Canadian. Now, to my American friends, this can be an odd thing to try to understand. So with the inspiration from a Canadian television commercial, let me try to express to you a little of what it means to be a Canadian relative to those of you who are not. 
You see, I'm not a lumberjack <laughs> or a fur trader. I don't live in an igloo or eat blubber or own a dog sled. I don't know Jimmy, Sally, or Susie from Canada, although I'm certain they're really, really nice. I have a prime minister, not a president. I speak English and French, not American. And I pronounce it about, not about. I believe in peacekeeping, not policing diversity, not assimilation, and that the beaver is a truly proud and noble animal. A toque is a hat, a Chesterfield is a couch, and it is pronounced Zed, not Z, Zed. Canada is the second largest landmass, the first nation of hockey, and the best, well, a really, really good and different part of North America. My name is Dana, and I am Canadian. But, you know, and of course, you know, with all good stories, you need to have a turn in it. Uh, most of all, I'm neither American or Canadian. And especially in patriotic moments like the one we're in, it's hard to remember that. But uh, I think in fear of sounding Sunday schoolish, my true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. What I desire most of all is not to be called Canadian or American, but to be called Christian. And to give my testimony is to speak of that primarily. That said, though, my citizenship in this kingdom has been dodgy, to say the least. When I was sworn in, so to speak, at uh, the ripe old age of six, my conversion was beautiful and right and true. But because I was so young, it was appropriately naive and far too big a commitment for me to handle. It actually reminded me of when I got married. Like I said, I'm 31 now, and on some level, I'm still naive, and this commitment to Christ is still far too big for me to handle. To push a tired metaphor further, I've committed treason, serving other nations as supreme, and have broken too many laws to mention in one sitting. Or put differently, I've sinned, and I've sinned a lot. And yet, God has been faithful to me. I think the most accurate way that I might describe my life would be to try to describe it as a paradox. I am declared a saint, but in honest moments, I feel mostly like a sinner. I've had the privilege to do some really nice things for people. But if I'm honest, uh, those have often been motivated by a desire for those folks just to like me. And probably that's too soft. What I really wanted is for them to adore me. I want desperately to love my wife and kids well. In fact, I just want to live life well. But I've struggled, I've struggled my whole life with things, well, everything from arrogance to addiction, from apathy to idolatry. It's worth emphasizing here, as Jeff Schloss did a couple weeks ago, that these are things that I am not proud of. I want desperately to be whole, but I'm too often willing to trade the possibility of transformation for those often-cited mud pies in the slums. I suppose that it is I that has been too easily pleased. In short, I'm nothing less than a criminal in God's country, and not just a criminal, but a criminal who's committed capital offenses. And yet, I'm here today to declare that I have been cleared of all charges. Historic, current, and future. By the one who adores the unlovable. By Christ himself. But let me, if you will, tease out just a little of what this process has looked like in my life in particular. It's, of course, impossible to articulate all that has been redeemed or restored in a Christian's life in one conversation. 
the task would be too big, especially since this redemption continues even today. So rather than giving you all a smattering of my life, I thought it might be more helpful to look at just a very few central images and follow their progression throughout my life until now. Perhaps some of the other details could be teased out over a cup of coffee or tea. But for this morning, let me try to paint a picture of life and death and rebirth with a few verbal snapshots. The story begins at a dinner party. My parents were throwing, and uh, I was about three years old. I'm the youngest of three brothers, and as I remember it, my older brother Derek and I were busy running and playing and flirting with the guests well after our bedtime. My father, being the good dad that he was, let us know in no uncertain terms that it was time to go to bed, and that if we did not, trouble would be coming. Well, perhaps some in this room can relate, but that warning wasn't quite as weighty as I thought it, or as he thought it was going to be. So Derek and I kept at it. Shortly after the warning, after I was kind of trailing behind my brother, uh, he cut left and yelped as he ran straight into my dad. He yelped even more when the tough love discipline ensued but I uh, managed to escape. I ran for cover to the bedroom, flipped the lights, hit the covers, and played dead. <laughs> I was half giggling as I contemplated how I thought I had gotten away with things scot-free. But as I mentioned before, I was naive. And as it turned out, trouble was still coming for me. It would just have to wait until morning. You see, the next day, my dad was killed in a car accident on the way to work. I didn't have many thoughts on the matter as a three-year-old, but what I felt was that this trouble had arrived, or this trouble that had arrived, was precisely the trouble that my father had talked about. My punishment for playing late was that he was going to leave forever, and that in that, some sort of twisted way, I was the cause of his abandoning our family. Further, I was carrying on a legacy. You see, my father's father died when my father was three. My father died when I was three. Did I mention how old my son is? He's two. You'll forgive me if I seem a little paranoid over these next 12 months. Anecdotes aside, the questions that have come up in my adult years are these. Is, possible, is it possible for the fatherless to father without passing down a legacy of fear? How might my heavenly father restore what has been taken away from me for life? Was there any hope for this insecure, petrified, angry little boy who was desperately needy? Perhaps. But it seemed that some intervention would have to take place. And I had only one hope. The psalmist writes that God is the kind of God that is the father to the fatherless. That wasn't my experience, though, at least not yet. Enter the second image. By the time I had reached high school, I had logged a significant amount of years wondering, in quite frank terms, who the hell I was. Apart from a few sports coaches, I didn't have a lot of older men in particular available to help me understand such things. I had a keen sense that there were things that I needed to get to become whole, but as a boy, I had no people in my life who were able to give it. I was incredibly insecure. In fact, I had a whole unconscious strategy on how to deal with this lack of confidence. Simply overcompensate. My false arrogance was one of the many masks I learned to wear with distinction. I began to measure my value in terms of winning and losing, so the goal was to win at any cost. In athletics, this was a great motivator. In relationships, though, it didn't quite work so well. If it looked like I was going to lose in a relationship, I would just sabotage the game. 
I was desperately lonely and incredibly angry. And deep down, I believed that my life was already fractured so badly with the death of my dad that the hopes of me winning at life at all were ultimately destined to failure. I was a loser, and I knew it. I just didn't want anyone else to find out. I started college for all the wrong reasons. I enrolled because it was the next thing to do, and it seemed like it would extend my fledgling athletic career. I picked the same major that the girl in front of me in the undecided line did because she was cute, and I thought if I was in the same, in the same major as her, we would have a lot of classes together. Just for the record, this is not a strategy that I would recommend. <laughs> After a year of disillusionment and a lot of very poor choices, I bought a plane ticket, quit school, and moved 17 time zones away to the country of Australia. The people I lived with were the people I met on the plane on the way over. This was a wild and incredibly lonely time. In retrospect, I think what I was trying to do was actually, uh, I was trying to set some sort of proverbial reset button. I just wanted to start over. Perhaps some of you can even relate to that idea. But what I didn't realize was I couldn't run away from myself and that life didn't work this way. Over the course of the year that I spent in the Southern Hemisphere, I was confronted with not just who I was, but who I wasn't. I was sick and tired of leading a chameleon lifestyle. I would act differently depending entirely on my context. I had been in the habit of going to church as I was raised, but the rest of my, looked, or the rest of my week looked very different. Again, perhaps some in this room can relate. Perhaps not. In a moment of deep longing for something more than my pathetic self, I was hit over the head by a sermon that exhorted me to count the cost of what it meant to be a Christian. It was a crossroads for me. In my rather loose logic, it seemed to me that at least one of three things had to be true. Either the way I was living my life with me at its center made sense, and that Christianity didn't, or Christianity with Christ at its center made sense, and the way I was living my life didn't, or both of those philosophies of life didn't work, and some other third philosophy could, but the truth was, Christianity and my way of life were no longer compatible. One thing was certain, something had to be right. And if I didn't find it, or if it didn't find me soon, my life would have not have lasted much longer. Of the options I had, I was certainly intent on letting go of my way of life, because it just didn't work for me anymore. Thus, my search for truth and for meaning as an adult began. And I believe I was willing to follow this search for truth wherever it took me. I pray I still am. Further, I praise God today that in his providence, he has been faithful to call me to himself, the most true thing that exists. As I began to look for ways to better understand this faith that I was buying into, I found myself traveling to Southern California to attend a Christian college. This was a few years later, and this time, my motivation for going to school was dramatically different. Over the next number of years, my heart and my mind came alive. In God's providence, certain other pilgrims, a little further down the way, met me, and they invited me into a life of the mind as well as a life of the heart. My thoughts and my emotions began to cohabitate. I felt like I began to wake up. I discovered a worldview that made sense. I discovered a community that supported and encouraged my search. I found wise women and wise men who gave flesh and blood to these ideas I was seeking after. 
I began to entertain the idea that there was more to me than just what I could see above the surface. And I began to invite light into those dark places. And over time, I found healing in those places. Now, just for review, I started my story by explaining or capturing a couple of glimpses. The first was losing a central piece to my life's puzzle. By losing my dad, I lost perhaps the most significant link to my Heavenly Father. In the second snapshot I just described, it was a little different. It was a witness of God's faithfulness to me in my life, giving me blessings of real tangible people who helped me to develop my own eyes to see Christ and my own ears to hear him. I went from being the loser to the story to feeling like I was the winner. The gifts that made me feel this way were almost worth worshiping themselves, which is precisely what I did. The problem was I was working out of the wrong metaphor. I was thinking the Christian life was about winning and losing. What God had in mind for me was not to win, but to become whole, which was and is far more ambitious. God was being kind to me in allowing these people to come into my life to give me these gifts. But these gifts were only substitutes for what was taken initially. And let me be more specific. Relative to my father, these men that I've talked about, they began to bless me in tangible ways. But they were at best surrogate fathers. They weren't my dad and never could be, and deep down I knew it. What I began to discover was, was there was still one dark chamber in my soul that I had yet to cast a light on. I was afraid to go to this central place, and I was scared to cast light on my greatest of fears. Could or would God, the Father, heal that part of my center that had my earthly father's name on it? I wondered how it was that I would ever recover from the brokenness of being fatherless. Without being able to put words to it as a young man, I felt like my fractured masculinity was ultimately terminal. I still worshipped the God that was my father and needed to experience the redemption that could only come from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then something happened that was rather surprising. Enter the third and final picture. The event was my bachelor party. Many of the men I just cited, those who have helped me to shape my adult life, did something extraordinary for me. The first part of the evening was a great meal with some great laughs and some good fun. But then the games ended. The bulk of the night consisted of a kind of rite of passage, custom-made specifically for me. There were probably about 15 guys there that night, and after giving me a uniform of a white t-shirt and white boxer shorts, I was instructed to come into a candle-lit room. The men surrounded me on all sides, and I was blindfolded. They proceeded to role-play what my first moments out of the womb might have been like with my mom and dad. They came up with a script saying the things that loving parents say to their children when they are born. Things like, look how precious he is. I wonder what he'll do with his life. Who will he grow to be? I was handed literally a sword to symbolize the strength I was given. Some other guys gave me a handful of eggs to symbolize the hope that was in front of me. I was wearing white to symbolize my innocence. I was then lifted up by these gentlemen and carried outdoors. My blindfold was taken off, and they began an interrogation about what happened next in my story. After walking around the question a bit, I finally declared out loud that when I was three, my father had been killed. At the very moment that I said these words, my father died, 
about four of my friends had lifted about a 15-barrel jug of ice-cold water, and they doused me from behind. So I say the words, my father died, and I get pounded from behind with gallons of ice-cold water in the cold evening. Needless to say, it was shocking. And the combination of cold and wet and the realization of my dad struck me in a profound and deep way. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. And then my friends made it worse. They took away my sword. They crushed my eggs. They covered me with red dye and black and gray ashes and ripped my shirt. It was so messy that my friends were covered in egg and soot too. But they never left. They didn't even try to clean me up. They were wise enough to know that wasn't their job. And as I stood there, just shivering, just in the night's cold, this mini army of men all around me, candles lit in their hands, they proceeded to affirm their commitments of friendship to me. Each had custom things to declare regarding our particular relationship, but each had a common end to their monologue. They each finished with the phrase, but I am not your father but I am not your father. For a while, I was confused. Finally, as my best man came up and did the same thing, he finished with, but I am not your father. This time, however, he added, you need to find your true father, the one who is able to take what is broken and make it whole. These things cannot come from your friends. These things only come from your one true father. Go find your father. The rest of the evening consisted of them sending me on a long walk toward a local beach, alone and messy. Did I mention this was my bachelor party? <laughs> By the time I arrived at the beach, these same men were sitting there waiting, although none had walked with me on my road. There's only space for one other for that. On the way, I cried out loud to God, and he heard me, and he still hears me when I cry out loud. He turned and heard. It turned out he was there all along, waiting for me to turn to him in my deepest of pain. God the Father is indeed faithful to the fatherless, at least this fatherless child. The reunion with my brothers at the beach was sweet. We ran and jumped into the ocean in the buff, as men tend to do when they are given the freedom. <laughs> the night had come full circle as I rejoiced in how sweet a treasure these comrades were to me to know me and to love me anyways. But the real gift was in how they directed me, not to themselves, but to the giver of themselves, not to a false claim of victory, but to my heavenly Father who alone could make things right. All of this reminded me of a time a friend helped me to name something I had never considered before. We were having a conversation about what it meant to have a calling, and more specifically, what it meant to discover one's calling. Perhaps it was timing, because on the surface it might not sound that profound, but to me, at this particular point in my life, it was weighty indeed. He said that my greatest strength, by God's grace, would necessarily have to come from my greatest woundedness, that to look for God in my wounds would be my only hope for full redemption. This suggestion was jarring, to say the least. It was jarring because the mere suggestion of it was terrifying. What if I entertained such wounds and didn't find God there? Worse still, what if he was right and I never was courageous enough to try and find out? 
There was something in his suggestion that rang true in my soul. He went on to suggest that if, in fact, my greatest wound was the loss of my father, it was no coincidence that the profession I had found myself in, namely working with college students, was that of a teacher, guide, translator, and in some cases, father. Yet I was the one who was never taught, had no guide, didn't understand life's language, and was, in fact, fatherless. This is no accolade on me. This was entirely a surprise, and I take it as a declaration of God's faithfulness, even when I couldn't see it. Now, to be honest, this is all truth, but it's a truth that is still working itself out. I kind of feel like I'm writing chapter 31 of an 80-chapter book. There are still large gaps in my abilities to teach and to guide and to translate, and certainly to father, which probably explains why I felt so emotional when those kids popped up on the screen. And I'm thankful for these gaps. They consistently remind me of my need for Jesus. I mentioned at the beginning of my sharing that this story of mine is not just historic. It's also current and will continue. It is always tempting when one is giving a testimony to speak purely in the past tense, as if to infer some sort of victory or completion to the drama. The obvious bad news is that my struggles continue. The good news, however, is that all of this actually has very little to do with me. It seems as though the real beauty about Christian testimonies is that they actually have very little to do with the people who give them, at least if they're done well. Sure, there may be some intriguing details that some might relate to or resonate with, but to be honest, the worth of a story where God enters in is God. You see, I am the sinner who was separated from my Creator. He is the one who intervened. I am the one who was insecure, broken, lonely, angry, and desperate. And he is the one who woke me up, loved me where I was, and has given me hope. I am the grateful recipient of his grace, but he is the one who is able to give it. He is the one who enables us to even shine light in dark places to his glory. Faithful is he who calls you and also will do it. For this and so much more, I am grateful to you, Lord. Amen. Go in peace.